Okay, if you would take your Bible and open with me to Matthew 16. We'll be in 21 through 23. Let's pray. (laughs) Step by step. Ah, Thank you that uh, you never give up on us. Um, Rich Mullins could not have written a better song. Um, He did not mean uh, physical steps, Lord, but in the phases of life, step by step, you will lead us. And I thank you for the difficulty of preaching through these verses um, and what that means, Lord, for us as a church. We think, I think at least, that how different life would be if I were to see you face to face and walk with you those three years and have you in, in my midst all the time. And yet you send your Holy Spirit. And better than that even is your word. Uh, working in, in conjunction with your Spirit. So we thank you for this, Lord. We ask that you would help us as we study your word and grapple with the difficulties of this text. In Jesus' name, amen. This is David Wells. He says, No one has abducted theology as in the abduction of a child. Rather, he goes on and says, the disappearance, that is, of theology, of of biblical teaching, is closer to what happens in homes where the children are ignored and and to all intents and purposes abandoned. They remain in the home, but they have no place in the family. So it is with theology in the church. It remains on the edges of evangelical life but it has been dislodged from its center. And as much as I would, again, would love to see Jesus face to face, the disciples saw Jesus face to face. And yet, at at least in name only, so all the way back in verse 16, we have this amazing declaration that Rod unfolded for us last week. Um, in verse 16, he says, uh, Simon Peter replied, "You." So who is Jesus? And his response is, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So they understood Jesus to be the Messiah. And so verse 20, they didn't know everything yet. And so Jesus says to them, 
he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So, but Peter had declared, um, and according to Christ, as revealed to him by the Father, and we have no reason to doubt that, <laughs> Peter had reason to, Peter doubted that, unfortunately, um, but it was declared to him as revealed by the Father. Uh, so, it was time for Jesus in 21 through 23 to uh, help them to understand a little bit better who the Messiah actually was. And so, <clears throat> if you will, Matthew 16, 21 through 23. Uh, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. So let's pray and then we'll get into this. Or well, we've already prayed, haven't we? Sorry. Sorry. I, I read this and that is the response, is gracious. I'm more like Peter than I want to admit. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, so I want to explore at least in these, in, especially from verse 21, why it was necessary for Jesus to even... Tell the disciples this. Um, there's three things here. Number one, uh, the timing was right. So if you see in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. So the timing was right based on their understanding, and it was limited. Um, <clears throat> they were further along in their understanding than the general public, and they're way further along than even the Jews. And we saw that in verse 14. Um, they said, some say John the Baptist, others uh, say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Um, those are the answers of the Jews. They did not know who Jesus was. They could not figure it out. But the response from Peter was, of course, that he was the Messiah, son of the living God. So if the majority of people who couldn't, of people couldn't figure out who Jesus was, the last thing they needed to hear was his purpose in coming. If a person cannot proclaim him as son of the living God, then that person can turn him to, into anything he wants. And in a trillion years, you'd never come to sovereign savior. Never. This has been refuted time and again uh, because he come, becomes a stumbling stone or a rock of offense, always. You can't have a hero die naked on a cross. That's that's ludicrous. And yet, it was exactly what God had planned. So, um, we would never turn him into what he actually is if we were not allowed to just study the scripture. Secondly, in required a sh- it required a showing, not just a telling. So, again, in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples, not just to tell them, but he showed them. So, it required a showing, um, and he so he had to introduce the concept of what he was what was said biblically about the Messiah. Um, and there's a whole lot more of this. 
uh, in Luke 24. So we're not going to turn there now, but basically he walks through the Old Testament. So we're going to have a taste of that here this morning. Psalm 69, 4 through 8. Uh, sorry, I'll slow down. Not everybody has a note. Psalm 69, 4 through 8. Um, uh, a text of some obscurity, unless you're a believer in Christ. Psalm 69, 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What... I did not steal. Must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs that I've done are not hidden from you, which we know from Christ the, that he didn't do any wrong and yet was hanging on a cross um, for the sins of other people. Verse 6, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord, God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. You can just kind of hear Jesus in the background saying, if they're ashamed of me, I'm ashamed of them. You know, we enter into the joy of our Lord. There's no shame left. There is no shame. Verse 7, For it is uh, for your sake that I have borne reproach, and it's the Father's will we'll talk about here in just a second, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. We saw that already in Matthew, didn't we? I mean, Christ, Christ Jesus, his family shows up and they are ready to take him away. Shh, shh, maybe he's insane. Okay, I, you know what, Jesus, just come live at our house in obscurity for until the day that you die. We don't want to hear what you have to say. We can't, we're not, people aren't computing this. You know, he's a circus sideshow, that kind of thing. So uh, now all of a sudden, verses like these come into clarity for us because of Christ. Who are this, who, who is, who's a stranger to my, bro- my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons? Oh, that's Jesus. Exactly. Christ-centered Psalm 16, these are the words of David. David says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Who died? Who said that? This is where you say David. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. David died. Oh, no. Uh, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to death. And according to, is it Stephen, that, you know, his grave is among us. David's grave is there. You know, it's in Jerusalem. But David, about a thousand years before Christ, is, well, what is he talking about? Without Jesus, this verse doesn't make any sense. And there's a whole lot more. But we're going to see that he was resurrected, which is what he predicted. That's what Jesus predicted. Ah, well, that was talked about a long time ago. It makes more sense now. Um, Thirdly, In this passage, he must go. Notice again, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. So it wasn't a choice. Um, He understood very early on that his mission for coming was father-centered, not man-centered. If you don't have the notes, Luke chapter 2 says this. Of course, uh, most of us see a teenager... He sees, here's what he says, look at verse 49. 
Why were you looking for me? Which we know that because he supposedly was lost, which Jesus is never lost, just so you know. He, he knows directions better than any man. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <clears throat> here he was, 12 years old, in the temple with his, confounding these teachers of the law at 12, uh, blowing them away, not only at his understanding, but the questions that he was asking. And he says, why were you looking for me at 12 years old? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or if you have a King James or New King James Version, I must be about my father's business. At 12 years old. And he wasn't talking carpentry. And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. Why? Because they were still couched in the Old Testament. They were still couched in a all the Jewish legends of what a Messiah was supposed to be, no matter how much she treasured these things in her heart, and she did, what they saw was Jesus being a cantankerous teenager, and what he understood at 12 was, it's not about me, it's about the Father. Um, so he knew the Father, and he knew that the Father sent him to suffer and die, and knew that he was the Lamb sent by God, Um so on this basis, John ten seventeen, uh, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. <laughs> he is perfect. And he spoke with, even though they didn't understand, he was speaking clearly to them. So, uh, and he was. He was perfectly submissive. Uh, it wasn't his will that mattered to him, but the Father's will. He knew it wasn't going to be easy. Um, so in the garden when he's praying, he's sweating drops of blood for us, because of us, because of our sin. Did that stop him? Did that stop the Father? And the answer is no. So for us, now 2,000 years removed from this, it is hard to imagine a suffering Messiah, isn't it? I mean, how many Catholic crucifixes have... A Jesus still on the cross. Oh, we want to take him off. And we should. I mean, he's resurrected. He says he's resurrected, but he did suffer. He did die. And it's, we don't want to, we don't want to deal with maybe that part of it. So, he also knew that what had been prophesied, what he prophesied about was that he wasn't going to stay in the grave. He knew he was not going to taste death ultimately. Not just the prophecy from from Psalm 16, but Jesus himself is saying, I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. He did keep his promise. So everything he said was true. Um, This all sounds good, but... The plan the Jews laid out for their Messiah, what they thought the Messiah was supposed to be, and what Jesus was teaching were two completely different things. So, enter the spokesman. Peter, poor Peter, opens his mouth and he probably shouldn't have. Uh, But, you know, back in verse 16, he was the man. In spite of what the Father showed him, he was the man. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, verse 22 of Matthew 16. Far be it, he says, from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Wow. Wow. 
Let's look at four things here from this verse. Number one, Peter can be seen here as protecting Jesus. At least Peter thought he was protecting Jesus. Uh, clearly, he correctly identified Jesus. That was verse 16. And the last thing he wanted to see was Jesus killed off. And that's what he heard. So Peter believes the vulnerable Jesus needed protected. Which, by the way, was completely contrary to his correct identification of Jesus, which is the son of the living God. How many of you have seen Around the World in 80 Days? Jackie Chan. All right, yeah, some of you maybe don't want to admit it. That's okay. Arnold Schwarzenegger's in this too. Anyway, it's it's hilarious. But what I find most hilarious about the whole movie is that the guy, the character that Jackie Chan plays is goes over to get the Jade Buddha, the protector of his village. I'll let that sink in for a second. The... Villagers had to protect their God. Get it now? Some of you be, this afternoon be like, oh, that's hilarious. Any, any God that you have to protect is not the one true God. <laughs> okay? He's a false God. It's heard on the front row. He's an idol. Any God that, that you feel needs you to step in, you're not serving the one true God. Yep, exactly. Secondly, at the same time, Peter thought it necessary to discipline Jesus. He, Peter, rebuked Jesus. Okay? It's not necessarily something we want to conclude but the word rebuked is very strong language. The idea here is to silence and or confront error. And what he basically told Jesus was to shut up and stand down. I hear what you're saying, but you just need to be quiet. And the reason I say that is because he re- tried to at least to rebuke him. It wasn't just pull Jesus aside and ask clarifying questions. It's he pulled him. He he heard him. And therefore, he rebuked him. Bad idea. A rebuke here is sit down and shut up. Third, Peter missed what Jesus was saying ultimately. So if he was to rise again from death, then the right response on Peter's part would have been to do to himself what he ended up doing to Christ. Come on, Peter, sit down and shut up. That's what he should have been saying to himself the whole time, was, you know what, I'm just a person, I'm just a man, this is the Messiah that I claim to believe in. I don't take him seriously. I should. So, sitting in Peter's spot, what should have come out of Peter was, Peter, be quiet. Peter, you don't need to say this. Um, It doesn't make any sense based on the fact that Only a few verses before this, Peter was declaring Jesus to be the Son of God. If this was anybody else, feel free to rebuke. This is the Son of the living God. It'd be better to be quiet at this point. And Peter wasn't. So, uh, fourthly, Peter responded with sincerity and emotion, but not truth. 
Jesus had spoken, and because Jesus had spoken, this should have been the end of the discussion. He spoke, period. He doesn't need to say anything else. And yet, what maybe what we don't realize is this is fundamental Christianity. This is Christianity 101. This is basic to following Christ. He's spoken, end of discussion. This covers, by the way, two doctrines. One is inerrancy and the other is sufficiency. Inerrancy means that when Jesus showed them what was to happen to him, he was speaking the truth. That's inerrancy. He wasn't lying. It was prophetic, but he wasn't lying. He told them the truth, so therefore inerrancy. For Peter to approach him in order to rebuke him meant that Peter didn't believe Jesus was right. But this is a matter of sufficiency as well. In other words, Jesus didn't explain his death and then add an addendum about how he was going to go through with all this if the disciples starting with Peter didn't prevent it. Oh, you're inerrant. You're speaking the truth, Lord, but I just don't believe you. Therefore, I'm adding this to what you've said. Oh, God, we hear you, but you, you, we, you can't do what you promised for thousands of years without my help. That's, uh, so the, the adding an addendum to what has been spoken doesn't means that Peter didn't believe in sufficiency either. Sufficiency is Jesus spoke, that's enough. So inerrancy and sufficiency go hand in hand. Um, so if what is spoken isn't true, then we have every reason to doubt it, and we should. Was Peter really going to prevent Christ from fulfilling what God had planned on the basis of Peter's sincerity? Hmm, boy, oh boy. That, that, 21, 22, uncomfortable enough. Not just that Peter rebuked Jesus or attempted to, but then we come to verse 23, and the discomfort continues. So Jesus turned and said to Peter, not you're, not you're acting like Satan or or you're taking cues from him, he actually calls him Satan. He doesn't call himself Satan. He calls Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. This is not, the, this is not an American Jesus. At all. And right now, rather than say, hearing those words, get behind me, Satan, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, we want to soften that. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So notice three things here. Jesus' rebuke seems harsh, but only from the outside. So if you would, go with me to Matthew 4. What's Matthew 4? What's in Matthew 4, kids? Thank you, children. (laughs) It's the temptation, isn't it? Yeah, it's because we're already at Matthew 4, and it's right there. So... Uh, the temptation of Jesus. Let's read the temptation. Matthew chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Which I find that ironic that he'd even put that in there. After 40 days, you should be hungry. 
And the tempter came to him, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So, if you'll notice that Satan, what Satan presses on Christ, not only the, did you notice that everyone starts with, if you're the son of God, he did everything he could to cause Jesus to doubt, but he presses Christ in every temptation, in particular the last one, with his comfort. Doesn't, doesn't all the glory of every kingdom gratify you? Yes, it does. But the kingdoms were already his. And he was the author of those nations. And the author of those tribes in those tongues, wasn't he? Absolutely. The temptation was to have it all with no cross. Mankind, that's us, is in pretty sorry shape, aren't we? Do we need atonement for our sins? Did Jesus know this? So did God. So he sends Christ to do that very thing. Will he receive believers in every nation, tribe, and tongue? Will Jesus uh, face death and win? Yeah, absolutely. Will he be satisfied? You better believe it. All, all the things that he was tempted with without the cross. He didn't... Satan didn't want Jesus to suffer because he, Satan himself, and maybe this is news to you, Satan knew that Jesus was going to the cross. Satan knew that there was atonement for sins. And so the temptation not only was for comfort, but to have all that without the cross. I'm going to give you all these nations. All the, you get all the glory of all the nations. No cross. This is a fast track. Wouldn't it be easier? And God made Satan. Secondly, Satan and mankind are on the same page. When we have a crossless gospel, we are not thinking about the gospel of God. Christianity cannot be compared to other religions unless we remove the cross. Peter was aligning himself with Satan and not with Christ because despite the predictions, Peter wanted to remove the cross from the plan of Christ. And he built it on his sincerity and he built it on his emotion, but he did not build it on what was spoken. Third, Peter, as much as it might be hard to 
grapple with the idea of, of, of the rebuke, Peter was a hindrance. This, once more, is a powerful word, powerful word in, in the Greek. It means a stumbling block or a fence. And, and you know what? You can read that into that, into the, into that verse. But he turned and said to him, Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block. Or get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. Ouch. Again, we're not dealing with an Americanized Christ, are we? He was a hindrance because he cared more about exerting his own opinion than that the plan of Christ depend and that the plan of Christ would depend on his strength. That's what he wanted. Peter was caught up with himself more than he was with Jesus. He was more caught up in what he was capable of than what Jesus had spoken. And that's really the crux of it. What did it, what did all of I mean what did it all lean on? It all leaned on Peter being able to stop him from the cross. We don't want a suffering Messiah. Jesus or Peter didn't want a suffering Messiah. He would have, he wanted a Messiah. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew he's the Son of God. And now that he's made all those right declarations, good. Now fit into the mold. That's that's what he wants Jesus to do. And that doesn't work. So how do we apply this first? As hard as it is to fathom a suffering Messiah, it is why he came. Oftentimes we want a conquering Messiah, a triumphant Messiah, or a winner of some kind. Much like the lost Jews who Christ condemned, he doesn't fit our mold, does he? We'll look to Jesus for an example, but fail to view him as a lamb slain for our sin. Oh boy, don't we wish as parents of teenagers that we had a little bit more than that teeny tiny window in Luke. If we just knew that Jesus lived a perfect life, you know, oh, we could we could ram that down our kids' throats. <laughs> oh, yeah, look at this. And he probably never even cried, right? Well, if we just had more of Jesus as a young person, we but what's that saying about Jesus? What's that saying about his word? Oh, Luke failed. He didn't give us everything that we should have had. Right, because you're looking for an example. You're not looking for a Messiah. You want an example. How do I live a good life? How do I live right before God? And not, I haven't lived right before God. I haven't followed a good example. We don't want to, we don't want to say those things because we want to live a good life. We're Americans. We're supposed to. That's just our job. That we didn't get other windows into the life of Jesus as a kid because we don't need an example. We need a Messiah. Secondly, sincerity and emotion are not safe guides. Peter refused to listen to the truth. Jesus had spoken. And for us, is that enough? As sinners, we don't have the right to tell God through his through our words and actions that he f- has failed. To think that God has failed is to tell God that his word is not sufficient. When we look for solutions beyond scripture, we are declaring God's word is not enough. Oh God, if we don't have this or that, we'll fail. Have you asked yourself, can I find it in the word? 
how in the world, for all these thousands of years, did the church survive without you name, fill in the blank? Is it something that you're leaning on beyond Jesus and his words? Because if it is, it's idolatry. Third, we need to evaluate our intentions and actions based on the suffering and resurrected Christ, not on our performance, um, not our abilities or our know-how. Either we'll find ourselves faithless as a result of this evaluation or, and hopefully repent of our faithlessness. Or we'll carry on like usual, depending on our standing and our strength. Do we see the gospel clearly? Let's pray. Oh God, what am I? Oh God, So much of what I do, so much of what we do as a church is built on our sincerity. And we fail to ask the question, what does the word say? We have failed, Lord, to conform ourselves to what you have spoken. And we run after this or that a thing. And the reality is that's not true. We're just like Peter. And we're, we have every right to hear those words spoken to us, get behind me, Satan. I feel, Lord, that everything that we try, maybe, as sincere as we are, is really hindrance to you. Men take over planes and fly into buildings sincerely. People strap on bombs and blow themselves up sincerely, Lord. (laughs) If what we believe is not based on what is true, then stop us. Prevent us, Lord, from taking another step forward. To think that anything that we do is somehow dependent upon our sincerity and and our emotion, and not what's true. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And on the days when I get up and I don't feel that way, that truth doesn't change. Praise be to you. (laughs) And no matter how I feel, no matter how crummy I feel, no matter how good I feel, the gospel never changes. This This is good news. It's why so often even men like Peter could be rebuked, not only from Jesus, but from Paul, Lord, because of the defense of the gospel. Because his conduct, a person's conduct, was not in step with the gospel. Oh, God, bring us back to this. Remind us, Lord, that we don't need an example. We need a Messiah.
And thank you for your provision for us. In Jesus' name, amen.